The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we will be talking about China's green agenda. We'll be discussing how changes to graduate visas could start to undermine the British dream. And we'll be debating the ethics of eating man's best friend. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine this week, Cindy Yu, writing ahead of the COP28 summit, describes how China has cornered the renewables market. She joins us now along with Akshat Rathi, senior climate reporter for Bloomberg and author of Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions. Cindy, could you start by telling our listeners what you mean when you say that China has cornered the green market? And can you give a sense of the extent of China's dominance over green technology? Yeah, so we're talking about various renewable energy technologies um, and Chinese state media is talking about the Xinxiyan, the new three, uh, which they refer to as batteries, EVs and solar panels. And those are the things that they are saying are driving the Chinese economy now, replacing the old three of clothing, furniture and home electronics. And so just to give you an idea of how well China's doing in terms of the scale on a global scale, China's now the world's largest investor in renewable energy. It makes three quarters of the world's lithium ion batteries, which is what powers electric cars. It has a third of the EVs sold in Britain, for one, are already made in China. And it also produces three quarters of the world's solar panels as well. And that's only just on these three things. So when we look at things like wind turbines, when we look at things like hydroelectricity, things like biomass, Chinese companies are also stealing a march, basically, internationally speaking. They're very, very competitive. It's not to say that other competitors don't exist from other places. But if you're going to get into the renewables industry now as a customer, you're going to need to get some kind of Chinese parts in your supply chain or actually buy from a Chinese manufacturer for your end product. And my piece is basically about how in the developed world, we're talking about net zero more and more, which is great, but we're not talking about supporting net zero companies more and more at all, or even strategically thinking about how we can supply our own renewable demands. And so that has happened where, where China is now supplying a lot of these things. Well, isn't there a bit of a perhaps irony in the fact that, as you say, while well, Western countries buy up a lot of this technology to try and achieve net zero, and they're buying it all, or most of it, from China, but at the same time, China's emissions exceed all developed nations combined, which is something you say. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is definitely an irony there, but I don't think there's a contradiction there per se. The irony is, as you point out, Will, but the reason I don't think there's a contradiction is because the thing that drives China's emissions as well as its renewables drive is pragmatism. It's basically whatever works for China, right? So if it works for China to be dominating this new futuristic industry, have an export opportunity there, then that's a good idea to do. But if it also works to keep burning coal and opening new coal plants, then that's what they're going to do too. So I think the reason for this kind of green drive, and one other aspect I talk about in my piece is about how China's cutting its own 
pollution back home because of the middle class disgruntlement about uh, increasing pollution. All of this comes together to the CCP basically saying, okay, what are these different things we're trying to do? What is the most pragmatic and efficient, effective way we can do this? It's not because they're like, oh, we're eco warriors now. We all believe in Greta Thunberg. That's not what's driving this. Uh, Although some people will be driven by that. It's more just what's going to bring in the money? What's a strategic thing to do here? And they've done it. Akshat, can you give us a bit of background on China's electric vehicle push, push and how it achieved its dominance? Yeah, it's the point that Cindy made, which is it's a form of capitalism that China is taking on for bringing economic development to the country. And it started all the way back, early 2000, in fact, when one gang who at the time was at Audi in Germany, but was a Chinese national, was interacting with the Chinese science minister and making the case that if China wants the kind of lifestyle that Germans have, they're going to have to burn 15 to 20 times the amount of oil per person. And there's just not enough oil in the world. And so if you want that lifestyle for your people, then you need to move on to a different form of energy to power your cars. And that's where it started. But the scaling up really happened around the Beijing Olympics. Um, Now, Beijing Olympics in 2008 was a spectacle that the Chinese Communist Party wanted the world to see and recognize China for what it had become. But it was suffering through heavy air pollution at the time. The smoggiest cities in the world were Chinese cities. And so For the Olympics, it turned off power plants, it turned off factories, it stopped vehicles, uh, many of them from coming under the road, and managed the air pollution. But it needed a long-term solution, and that's where it started to deploy electric cars. And it did so through a series of state-supported policies, starting with direct subsidies given to many of the battery and car companies to make electric cars and lithium-ion batteries, but also indirect support in terms of free land or access to infrastructure in different states. And then finally, it had a stick. It said, you can't buy this car, which is fossil fuel powered, unless you're willing to pay essentially double the price of the car uh, as a tax. But if you want to buy an electric car, here's the price, you can buy it. And that carrot and stick approach really worked for China. And now China does have cleaner cities, much cleaner skies. Now the dirtiest cities in the world are in India. Mm. Cindy, I wonder if you could speak to our listeners a bit about the implications of China's dominance on green technology when it comes to risks in the West, both perhaps economic risks and concerns about national security as well. Um, what what are the concerns in these areas? Yeah, quite a few concerns for those who are concerned. <laughs> um, the economic one is obvious. If China is dominating these uh, industries, if businesses are going to China to get their batteries instead of going to Europe, if consumers are buying Chinese EVs instead of European EVs, then that's an economic opportunity that the West in general, but also the UK specifically, is losing out on. So, for example, the UK is the world's second largest installed of offshore wind and yet we don't have any British companies in the top 15 largest wind companies in the world 10 of those are Chinese so that's an economic opportunity which just just lost and a spectator spoken to union boss Gary Smith in the past who said basically people in this country can see the wind farms but they don't see the jobs so these green jobs that Boris Johnson talked about um, they haven't really transpired in the UK then there's a security concern of course as well because 
as with a lot of these um, newfangled technologies like EVs, they come connected to the internet. So all EVs, not just Chinese ones, but all ones have central control modules um, that are updated with software that the manufacturer can update. The worry for the Chinese ones is that if your Hangzhou-based headquarters or your Shanghai-based headquarters receives an order from the party, can they really say no to switching off particular mm. EVs remotely. The technology certainly exists. Or, or harvesting the data, right? That's the other thing. Yes, exactly. Or harvest the data. So location data. Mm. Um, EVs are also equipped with microphones because they sometimes they're voice commanded. They have cameras often with parking. So all of this stuff, you know, where is it stored and could it be remotely controlled? So that's a security concern. And especially if it's going to be en masse in British streets. And then the third concern is ethical, I would say. Um, a vast majority of the raw constituents for Chinese solar panels come from Xinjiang, mined and processed there. And we know the problems with uh, labour in that particular region. It's most likely that they're being produced with Uyghur labour who are not consenting to be there. Uh, Those are real concerns, but these are not new concerns, right? Geopolitics of resources is a problem in the industrial era for decades. In the 70s, we came across that problem when we faced the OPEC crisis where suddenly Middle Eastern economies did not want to supply all that oil and gas that they were supplying uh, because they had political aims. And that led Western economies to try and find alternative sources, but clearly not enough that they weaned themselves off fossil fuels. The Chinese concern is a new one where because those resources are concentrated in a country which is having tense diplomatic relationships both with Europe and China, that there's a risk if they cut off access to some of the battery metals, for example, that the EV transition will slow down. But there are also lower risks than in the past because once you do have the metals, you can make those batteries, you can recycle those batteries and you can make them at home. Once you do have those solar panels, you don't have to depend on China for the sun. So there are slightly different risks than in the past, but certainly ones that Western economies need to consider, and they have started to do so. There is both a focus on critical minerals, as it's called, in the US and in Europe in policymaking alongside the Inflation Reduction Act and the European Green Deal. But we haven't yet seen the results of what those policies have done Today, the supply chain is still very much linked to China for green technologies. Mm. Cindy, on a slightly different note involving the politics of a lot of this, Mm. what did you make of the appointment, surprise appointment, of David Cameron as Foreign Secretary the other week? I mean, he famous, one of the most famous foreign policies of his government when he was Prime Minister was the so-called golden era of relations between UK and China. Uh, In the subsequent years, I think it's safe to say the party has regarded a lot of what was done in that golden era as as a as a mistake can we now expect a return to closer ties with china now that um lord cameron is back in frontline politics i think perhaps if it doesn't look like the tories are going to lose the next election <laughs> <laughs> so everything i'm about to say will be caveated by the fact that in a year's time we may well have a change of government but i i would be surprised because i think david cameron has been beaten over the head with the golden era for so long in, during his legacy building uh, since he left government that i think i would be surprised if he goes back to that although I suspect he hasn't changed his actual opinions. So it's not so much that he would change government policy, but in the day-to-day interactions with his Chinese counterparts, for example, I think he will be definitely presenting a much more friendlier face than, well, two predecessors before him, which is Liz Truss. 
And actually, just to finish on, you are at COP this weekend. Can you give us a bit of a roundup of, of what you think we can expect to see? What is clear is that there's a huge gap between where we need to be when the Paris Agreement was signed versus where we are. And this COP, uh, that gap will be probably met with political statements uh, to do with tripling renewable energy by 2030, uh, doubling energy efficiency by 2030. And then there will be a fight. There's always a fight on figuring out whether countries can agree to phase out fossil fuels. Uh, what we do know is as of day one of COP, the agenda, which is a technical thing that you have to agree on, which are all the topics that will be talked about over the next two weeks, has been agreed upon. Usually even the agenda is a fight. Uh, so, so far, the infrastructure seems to be working. Delegates are coming in. The agenda has been agreed upon. Now it's really what can these negotiators achieve in the next two weeks? Thank you, Cindy and Akshat. Next up, Margaret Mitchell writes in The Spectator this week about the uncertainty she's facing around her graduate visa. This is after statistics by the ANS last week showed that net migration remains unsustainably high, leaving the government under pressure to curb legal migration. Margaret, who works at The Spectator, joins us now alongside Michael Simmons, The Spectator's data editor. So, Margaret, could you start by telling listeners, first of all, why you wanted to come and study in the UK and also why you wanted to make your career here? So I initially wanted to come to the UK because I appreciated the university's structure a bit more than in the United States, where you usually have to take uh, a sort of like core curriculum of science, maths, history, theology, philosophy, every everything under the sun, um, whereas you could apply directly for whatever you wanted to major in. So I knew that I wanted to study English when I was coming out of high school. And yeah, I just thought it would be a bit of a, an adventure. I grew up moving around a lot, so it sort of seemed like the natural next step. And tell us a bit about the visa issues that you've seen coming down the line sure so i thought that i had it i thought that i had it hard but it used to be even worse where you as soon as you graduated you'd be sent back home and have to find a job from there if you wanted to stay in the uk whereas post-brexit and when you say you sorry just to interrupt but you mean uh non-eu sorry yeah so so yeah non-eu non-uk international students would have to move back to their home country and if they wanted to work in the UK, they would apply for a job from their home country. Whereas post-Brexit, we, or we, the UK, sort of needed a bigger influx of immigrants coming in to fill jobs. Uh, you didn't really have that natural movement of EU students through the UK and vice versa. So they extended that period of being able to look for a job to two years. So you would switch from your student visa to your graduate visa, have two years to find a job, and hopefully within that period of time, you would get sponsored by a company willing to pay you over 26 grand and they have to be fully licensed and everything like that. So it's not, you know, it's not every company um, and it's sort of a security against bogus companies <laughs> setting up their visa schemes to get, to get workers into the UK. And then now the, the, the suggestion, is it not, is that the, that threshold, that 26,000 that you mentioned, the idea is that it might now be raised to 40,000, isn't that right? Yeah, so there are lots of different ideas floating around. From what I understand, it's not only to raise the visa threshold, but also to cut out that two-year period to search for a job in the UK. So that would deter a lot of people from staying around in the UK to work. You'd have to leave as soon as you graduate, basically. So some people have you know, pushed the idea of 40K. I know that that's what um, Boris has <laughs> 
pushed for in his his recent Daily Mail article, which is very ironic because he's the one who, in the first place, lowered it from about 35k to 26. Same as you know, that's what Suella Braverman is saying. Kimmy Badenoch is sort of hesitant to give any any random number, um, but yeah, between 35 and 40k, that's kind of what's being floated about. And Michael, uh, the reason that this discussion is being had in government uh, is because last week we had the statistics on net migration from the ONS. And as the Spectator's data editor, I wondered, could you give our listeners a little bit of a breakdown of these figures? And um, where do student visas fit in to this bigger picture? Yeah, so um, the net migration figures that came out last week uh, basically showed that in the year to June this year, um, there's 672,000 as the net figure um, that have come to the UK. But the bigger story was that last year's figure was revised up to 745,000, which is just a record high by miles. It's way higher than, you know, going back 200 years of people coming in and leaving this country. Now, students make up about roughly 40% of the non-EU portion of that net migration. And the student visas specifically, um, when we look, break down the net figures, are kind of up sort of tenfold on what they were pre-pandemic. And that's kind of led to like a big debate because there's people who, you know, as Margaret mentions in her piece, who are now saying, oh, this is people that we should cut, cut, cut away to kind of get that number down. But there are other, there's another line of argument that actually should these study visas even be included in the, in the figures in the first place? Because, you know, certainly historically, a lot of people who have come on study visas have then left. So there's an argument that, you know, they shouldn't be included in the figures anyway. So it's it's a kind of active point of debate. And I think it's a, it's an easier thing for the government to do anything about than they would about the sort of wider worker visas. So that I think that's why, you know, student visas have come to the fore. And that 40% then, of, of which makes up the student visas in, in non-EU visas, uh, is that an increase compared to previous years in terms of proportion? Uh, so the cert, compared to last year, it's the proportion is quite similar, but um, certainly pre-pandemic, it's gone up a huge amount. Kate Andrews has written about this, um, and she argues that a lot of this is actually sort of pent-up demand from the pandemic. You know, people that planned to come to the UK in the lockdown years, but, you know, their course was cancelled. They decided, what's the point if there's going to be a lockdown? But um, that kind of doesn't explain all of it. There's there's an increase of... Um, if you look at the specific studying that's going on, a lot of it is for graduate visas. So there's increasing number um, of universities are funding themselves through their um, postgraduate courses. And so... They're they're becoming reliant on you know foreign students to 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 pay pay for the fees, I, I including went, you. Yes, exactly. Uh, I went to uni in Scotland, um, and because I'm Scottish, I got it for free. And um, I know Margaret Margaret went to uni in Scotland as well, so you know she funded it basically. <laughs> so thanks, Margaret. And Margaret, do you know other Americans in in the UK who are in sort of similar situations? And if so, what what are their plans? Um, yeah, so most of the Americans that I know are from my graduating class. So we're all sort of writing out the next maybe 10 months until our visas expire. So everyone's sort of trying to figure out what their long-term plans are within that window of time. I have I have one friend who's been sponsored fully by his company. Um, so he's able to work here, you know, as long as they keep sponsoring him. But for the others, even if they are making that pay threshold, you know, they're not always working for companies that do have a license to sponsor them. So they're either looking at going on to a postgraduate course to sort of try and delay the end of their time in the UK, or, you know, they're, they've come to terms with the fact that they'll have to go back to the States at the end. And Michael, Rishi Sunak's obviously been under pressure this week because of these ONS 
statistics uh, under pressure to curb legal migration. What can we, do you think, expect the government to do on this? As you say, student visas, in a way, are a bit of an easy target. So so will they be the target? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, look, you, you can either cut the working visas or the student visas. There are jobs that need filled in the economy, and the government has not shown a lot of signs of wanting to... I mean, it, it has talked about getting people off welfare and into work, but it doesn't look like it's going to do the hard yards to really make that happen. Um, so they, 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 as much as the government would might want to pretend otherwise, they just are reliant on um, overseas workers, and I think that will continue. And students will probably then be um, sort of an easier easier target for them to go to. But again, that's going to you know have funding implications um, for universities. But that may be the you know the the path the government decides you know the one of least resistance. Margaret, just finally, do you think people will sort of look differently at Britain if it starts becoming a bit more of a hostile environment for graduates? I certainly think that it will, like, less American students will be inclined to come here. There is always going to be that sort of romantic vision of going to Oxford or Cambridge or even St. Andrews. That people are still going to continue to have that even, even if, you know, they don't have prospects here afterwards. But, you know, regardless of whether this you know, any sort of change in the in the visa situation, um, if that impacts the way that people look at the UK and if they see it as being more hostile, I think over time it's going to stop. It's going to be less of an innovative country. It's going to be less of an exciting place to live. People might not be deterred because they feel it's hostile, but they won't feel that it's really, you know, a good place to stake their futures in. Thank you, Margaret and Michael. And finally, why not eat man's best friend? This is the question that Sean Thomas grapples with in his piece for The Spectator this week, after it was announced that South Korea is hoping to ban the eating of dogs. Sean joins us now, alongside The Spectator's vintage chef, Olivia Potts. So Sean, before we get to the dog, can you start by telling us some of the weird and wonderful other things that you've tried during your time as a travel journalist? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've made it my life's work to try almost anything wherever I go. I've eaten whale tarantula, cockroach, algae, puffin, snake, bear, elk, crocodile, kangaroo, and some of them have been quite nice. So, you know, I always think it's good to explore. When you go, I'm a travel writer, and when you explore, you should explore cuisines as well. And um, yeah, some of them have been really quite delicious. Well, it's been a pleasant surprise as opposed to expectantly nasty. (laughs) Uh, Elk? Then maybe that isn't that surprising because it's like, you know, it's like venison or something. Whale was okay. It was kind of slightly fishy, but beefy. It was, you know, certainly you wouldn't say no in a restaurant. It was all right. (laughs) And Olivia, how about you? Are you similarly adventurous with food when you travel abroad? Well, I think I I probably would have described myself as an adventurous eater before reading Sean's piece. And now I feel incredibly pedestrian. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure I've tried any of those things. (laughs) I, I would certainly always want to try local cuisine, cooked in the way that they cook it but yeah I think I think when it comes to things that Sean Sean's tried I I am I am found wanting yes and do um is it something that uh uh as our vintage chef as the spectators vintage chef when you start thinking about recipes that you want to pass on to our readers are you ever tempted to get quite wild and adventurous I mean I'm, I'm not talking dog but uh but <laughs> but you know how how far do you think you 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 should push as a food writer to get readers to try new things well, I think, I mean, when you're looking at the vintage t- stuff, it sometimes feels like you're kind of pushing the modern envelope anyway if you're suggesting, like, 
spam or corned beef or aspic, none of which are actually terribly frightening or weird. But even those things you feel like you you have to hold a modern reader's hand and, and justify to them that it is delicious. Whereas I think the way that the way that Sean has looked at it is you gain something simply by virtue of trying it. Now, if you are the person who is having to source those things and make the recipe, it's a slightly different equation. So I think when I'm when I'm going to the readers, I have to have slightly more, uh, yeah, sli- slightly more justification up my sleeve. And Sean, take us through what is the climax of your piece where you you try barbecued dog? Um, take us through the experience and also maybe the kind of sort of moral decision, kind of quandary to whether or not you should eat dog. Yeah, I mean, it is a moral quandary. I mean, like uh, many people in the West or all over the world, I'm, I look at dogs as pets, you know, the, the, the family hound, part of the family almost. And uh, interestingly, uh, even in Cambodia, where they do eat dog, they, they are increasingly wary of it and it's it's increasingly unpopular. So they, and, and they attach euphemisms to it. The guy, this guy called Chan, who took me to this restaurant, he said they call it special meat or little cow. So, so that people aren't really told they're eating dog. And they used to spit roast the whole pooch outside. It was obviously a dog. And now often they do it at, at the back. So you're not, you know, so they hide it away from you. Similar to our own hypocrisy where abattoirs are all hidden away. Slaughterhouses, you know, we, we don't think about it. So anyway, so we got in a tuk-tuk. And it took about half an hour to go to this re- quite remote restaurant on the edge of Phnom Penh which nonetheless is quite popular. People do drive for miles around knowing that it does good dog. They, 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 it's got a reputation. He's a good boy. No, sorry. <laughs> and and I, mean, I can't really you know, compare it to any other dog I've had because I haven't. But uh, it was barbecued quite well. It was like a sort of chewy goose or chewy duck served with greens like lettuce, herbs, you know, salad greens, and a really nice peanut dipping sauce and yeah it was it was it was okay it wasn't and once I got over the whole conceptual oh my god I'm eating a dog it was it was you think well that's okay if I was given that just served it you know namelessly in a restaurant in the far east and I wasn't told what it was I'd eat it fairly happily so in terms of the morality of it Sean because there will be certain listeners who think that 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 even sort of eating a dog at all is just a frightfully immoral thing to do that they will question the ethics of of you doing it and of us for running the piece um and i wonder what what are your ethics when it comes to food is there anything that you think in principle is off the off the table yeah well any endangered wildlife of course that's that's you know you you don't eat that anything that's a health hazard you know i mean you know i think eating i believe eating primates close to us is a health hazard because we have similar parasites stuff like that um, and of course, any meat where you're troubled by the way, you know, it's it's the husbandry, you know, battery chickens, you know, pigs in tiny boxes. We do a lot of that in the West and we get over it morally. Mm. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy surrounding this. It's just because we, we regard dogs as being pets that we that we find eating them you know abominable. It's it's just another source of meat. And if you are prepared to eat meat, you should be prepared to eat any meat within those criteria, I'd say. And Olivia, do you agree with that? Uh, from a moral perspective, if not from a perspective of of uh, taste, I I think there are animals that I wouldn't want to eat, even as a meat eater. 
that I'm not sure I could justify the delineation morally between those I would and those I wouldn't. It's like a gut, it is probably, it like a gut feeling sort of thing? Or? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it probably is a morally a, a, an irrational stance to take to say, well, because we habitually domesticate these animals, I am not prepared to eat them. I will, for example, eat wild rabbit, even though, although I don't personally keep rabbits, I like them as pets and I know plenty of people who do. I would feel differently about cats and dogs. But I accept that, that perhaps the moral distinction is, is a really tricky one there. But I, I think uh, there is simply the sense of it being a taboo. And that would be enough for me to say, actually, unless, uh, unless there was an extraordinarily good reason for me to do so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be seeking out those meats to eat. Do you think there's a part of it where we don't, you know, humans don't tend to eat carnivorous animals so much? So dogs cats you know, other animals that will probably eat meat we, we tend to avoid those do you think that might be part of it as well sean um yeah I, i'd always thought that and i always thought it was because they didn't taste very good but actually the dog tasted all right so i'm not sure if that is the reason why we don't eat carnivorous animals though so, you know, it, it does seem to be a thing we, we tend to avoid them going back sorry i, I completely uh, olivia's point interestingly the, the khmer guy i was with chan who took me to this restaurant he didn't eat dog. And he told me it was because in the village where he grew up, that his neighbours had this lovely pet dog. And it was, and, it was, and he adored it as well when he was a boy, playing with this dog. And then one day he turned around and realised they were eating it. They were eating their own pet. And he found that outrageous and he couldn't cope with it. And ever since then, he's been unable to eat dog. So he sat there not eating it. I shared it. I shared the dog with the tuk-tuk driver. So it's, you know, the Cambodians who do eat a lot of dog also have that same dilemma. You know, so it's not just us. It's a worldwide thing. Thank you, Sean and Olivia. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.